0: I along with my patrolling team was out tracing an offence during which we received information from an informant that near colony, a woman is trying to sell alcohol stored in plastic bottles. And after updating her with this information, we took the patrolling team and forayed the location thus mentioned. A woman was found standing there with plastic bottles who was caught after the siege. When we checked the bottles in her possession, we found that they contained 2 litres of raw mahua alcohol which cost around 200 rupees when we inquired about any documents concerning the possession of the alcohol she replied that she did not have the prerequisite papers and based on her statement we concluded that the alcohol is illegal we seized the illegal alcohol at 1730 date the accused has been booked under section 341 of the excise act and has been served a notice under section 41 1a criminal procedure code to appear before the court the crime was registered and taken up for investigation. That was an excerpt from a First Information Report FIR filed in Madhya Pradesh's Jabalpur district in the year 2019. Today's guests shared this FIR with us because it exemplifies a trend of policing based on their analysis of 540 randomly selected FIRs filed under the Excise Act from three districts in Madhya Pradesh. On paper, the section they are charged under is about regulating the sale of alcohol. We learn about what this trend of policing says about power and control through their research. Welcome to Research Radio, a podcast by Economic and Political Weekly. I'm your host Abhishek. Let's start by zooming out from the FIR we read out earlier.
1: You will see that, you know, particularly with Kuchbandiya women, there, will, there are individual women that are charged with about like, 20 to 25 cases under the Excise Act.
0: That's Nikita Sonavane, the founder of the Criminal Justice and Police Accountability Project.
1: The Kuchbandiyas are a community that traditionally make liquor and in the context of Madhya Pradesh, that's Mahua. And this has been our experience of the Excise Act that most of these cases will result in acquittal. Three, four years down the line, trial hoga, log jayenge, peshi karne, and ultimately they will be found not guilty. But what you have seen is that there are 20 plus cases and counting on individual women, which means once you have got a foot into the system, it's a vicious cycle, then there is almost no exit from it. You know, which means like, even if ultimately three, four years down the line, you are found not guilty by the law of this land, it means that you have been termed as being a habitual offender and you're spending the rest of your life just litigating different cases. Which is, of course, along with the sort of indignity and the violence of that, is also a huge financial burden. Because, you know, you are like 20 plus cases, which means on an average, this person must have shelled out at least 2 to 3 lakh rupees on the bail sureties and getting out of these cases. And this is for selling mahua, where like 1 pau will be like some 20-30 rupees. So you are looking at people who are shelling out and incurring enormous debts in order to be able to prove their innocence within the system only to be continuously incriminated by it. And I think this research also reflects that, right? And also like this sort of characterization that these women are somewhat like the linchpin of this liquor mafia, We've seen that a lot of deaths of spurious liquor in this country, including Madhya Pradesh which last year amended the excise law to introduce the death penalty soon after this paper was published actually, you saw the, we saw that like what prompted that move was these two deaths that happened in two different districts of the state as a result of consuming alcohol. And in our research of the Excise Act, we've also seen that the licenses that are given to brew liquor in the state are predominantly to people who belong to Brahmin and Banya communities. So they have a monopoly over the license system. But when you see the narrative that goes in the criminal justice system, you will see that these Kuchbandiya women who are making Mahua and selling it at like 20 rupees, 30 rupees a quarter are the ones that are actually the kingpin of this mafia. And are paying the price for it with about 20 or 30 criminal cases in their name. And so it it shows you, it shows you, right? And and you all will also see that, again, this narrative of ye mahilaye aur bhartiya izzatdar mahilaye aisa nahi kar sakti will not come into play here. You know, because here you are saying that then it becomes the narrative of the manipulative criminal woman who is actually weaponizing her femininity and her womanhood to carry out and to oversee this massive, you know, organized crime. You see why, therefore, you know, the narrative of the criminal woman also needs to be complicated and it like we need to understand it for what it is, which is that it is a manifestation of Brahminical
2: patriarchy. Nikita covered a lot, but I, I just wanted to add another sort of point.
0: That's Rujina Bej a lawyer and researcher formerly with the Criminal Justice and Police Accountability Project.
2: From our exercise, you know, study, like, of course, we found that a majority of the licenses that were being given under the Act were to companies that were controlled or owned or managed by oppressor caste communities. Uh, And then you see that the policing that Happens is of you know Vimukta communities who are engaging in small scale traditional liquor trade. But you know, like something that that was interesting that came up, uh, when we were kind of doing field work in our in the course of our research was that we were also told that these very same companies then have individuals that they you know pay like a nominal amount of fees to per weekly or per month. At least that was the case in the city of Bhopal where they would encourage these individuals to keep an eye out for who is selling this sort of uh, traditional small-scale liquor, traditional liquor, and and collect those and give that to, you know, the company management. And I think what was unsaid, I mean, the the gaps that needed to be filled was that then this information is, of course, given to the police, who then go about sort of, uh, you know, arresting these individuals or filing cases against them. It's that nexus that Nikita was talking about, where the police is... A tool of maintaining that caste order, and of course, like under the Exiles Act, it's two kinds of, uh, I guess, prongs of the caste system that it's maintaining. Right? One, it's maintaining that economic capitalism for the upper castes, and two, it's of course, it's enforcing this very uh, brahminical sort of notion of what is, uh, what are activities that are pure, what are substances that are pure that one can and should consume, and what are substances that are impure uh, that one should not be consuming. So, you know, the, the police really become that tool then to enforce that kind of caste social order. And, uh, you know, the Criminal Justice and police Accountability Project's uh, you know, report on excess policing in Madhya Pradesh also found that, you know, there was also like targeted policing of certain communities and, and certain areas or certain hamlets where you see that there is a large number of uh, individuals that live in that community who belong to the uh, Vimukta community and in, in that area. And then these are also the individuals that are, you know, disproportionately charged under FIRs.
0: Right, right. And just looking back, what are the historical reasons why this type of criminalization is taking place against Vimukta communities specifically?
2: Vimukta women's bodies today are sites of three uh, different systemic institutions of power that are operating and interacting and changing with one another. Uh, The first is coloniality, the second is the caste system, and the third, of course, is Brahminical patriarchy. So all of these are interwoven. And essentially, uh, you know, when the colonial state came to India, they were threatened by the mobility of nomadic communities and other communities who populated the margins of civilization. Because these communities evaded the empire's imposition of modernity and progress with their uh, unregulated lifestyles and economies which were antithetical to the imperial capitalist enterprise which was entirely founded on the bedrock of you know communities being sedentarized and taxed and being constantly under state control and this is of course not unique to india we know that nomadic communities in the middle east and africa were also forcibly sedentarized and you know Europe had already branded mobility, even in its own geographies, as a criminal activity and viewed it with a lot of suspicion. So when the colonial state came to India and it noticed these non sedentary communities that were beyond you know, this European industrial and social order, obviously there was a lot of suspicion. At the same time, when the colonial state came to India, they were trying to civilize a nation of savages. And it was very instrumental for them to establish a facade of law and order because they simply didn't have the physical resources that they needed to control such a large, diverse population. And so what they did is they identified specific communities that they believed would be ideal as proper objects of policing. And they pinned these communities as having criminal characteristics. With Vimukta communities, that was legalized and institutionalized in the sense that the British passed the Criminal Tribes Act and held that there are specific communities that are, you know, um, habitually committed to the commission of non-bailable offenses. And it's very interesting that when the British first came to India, they established specific law and order departments that looked into these kinds of um, hereditary criminal activities And after these departments were established, then the colonial government went into, you know, like formalizing a police structure and and bringing some form of unity and structure to the police force in India. So it's almost like, you know, the construction of criminality itself preceded the institution of the police. And of course, this construction of criminality was, uh, you know, sort of deeply influenced by Pseudoscientific notions of the existence of a dangerous class of born criminals, all of which were pioneered by, you know, pseudoscientists like Cesare Lombroso in Europe. But a large part of the sort of ideological underpinning for this rationale of criminality itself being a hereditary trait came from the caste system. Uh, and and the caste system is explicitly used uh, and and cited. To offer legitimacy and teleology to this notion of branding entire communities as hereditary criminals. So the British came to India, they noticed the caste system and they said, you know, there is a profession that is assigned to each group and there is no society without crime. Of course, then crime, which is conducted in such a systematic and uh, professional manner must also be something that is practiced by communities through the caste system itself. So it was the caste system that gave the legitimacy for the Criminal Tribes Act. And it was also the caste system that helped identify which communities could easily be propped as objects of policing without a repression from society as a large. at, at large. Uh, so of course, there is uh, that interplay of caste and coloniality that has gone into criminalizing vimukta bodies per se, both men and women. But around the same time that the Criminal Tribes Act was established, you know, the archetype of the criminal Indian woman was also being constructed by the British col- uh, colonial government, because they were also coming in with Victorian notions of female sexuality. And, of course, to continue that projection of, you know, Indian women being uncivilized, one major narrative uh, and archetype that they needed to construct was that of Indian women being you know, indisciplined, immoral, uh, deceitful figures who, who really required disciplining. And uh, the British also enacted the Infanticide Act of 1870, where they essentially criminalized and apportioned the entire criminality and culpability of infanticide solely on women, neglecting, you know, the role of the state, the role of male partners and the role of the caste system as well. So that act was sort of critical in constructing Indian women and you know, legitimizing the idea that these are women that have uh, lose or no morals, and uh, you know, given the sort of uh, interplay and grade of, of caste and coloniality and gender and the sort of graded in inequalities in the caste system, of course, Vimukta women who were who were anyway branded as belonging to communities that were uh, you know hereditarily, traditionally criminal were of course viewed with double suspicion. And, you know, there is colonial anthropology that has gone into details, constructing, hypothesizing, but of course stating as, as truth and fact, that women from specific Vimukta communities, you know, commit specific kinds of crimes. So some communities, women were branded as prostitutes, others were branded as uh, pickpocketers, others were branded as housebreakers and thieves. All of this has gone into constructing Vimukta women as being criminals and therefore deserving state discipline, therefore deserving societal and social discipline. And of course, post-independence, we've had, I mean, we've repealed the Criminal Tribes Act, but we've seen administrative powers and wide discretionary powers being given to the police. And uh, as I said before, because the police as an institution were formalized almost alongside you know, like, temporarily, almost alongside the same time as Vimukta communities were being branded as criminals and they were being constructed as criminals through extensive, you know, police records of actual or fictional uh, crimes that were being committed with very sketchy evidentiary value to the claims that were being, to the allegations that were being made. You know, that that attitude of considering these communities as being the go-to suspects for any crime that has been committed has been institutionalized and has continued and of course uh, we know that the police system and the police institution is casteist and these are communities that lie at the absolute margin and fringe of society and so they're easy pickings. Mm-hmm.
0: So w- w- you've detailed how you know the institutions of the police uh, and criminal just, justice system uh, practice casteist and gendered violence. Uh, so how do you locate uh, the, the the institutions uh, in conjunction with uh, the institution of the state and corporations? And, uh, you know, in what ways has this led to a deeper entrenchment of uh, caste-based gendered violence?
1: I mean, just to build on what Sudhana is saying, right? Like, what is it that the colonial government institutionalized, right, uh, is something that is important to look at. Now, I think, especially in the last couple of years, you know, you've seen this whole narrative that the first lawgiver, you know, with the sort of saying we need to reclaim our Hindu past, like there is this saying of, you know, that the first lawgiver is Manu and like the first sort of origin of how we understand laws uh, and how you make sense of the laws is through the Manusmriti, right? And I mean, if we look at like the what the Manusmriti said and like what did it deem as being an offense, who did the Manusmriti say need to be controlled you will see that it's saying that oh you know like the Shudras and the Atishudras uh, are the ones that you need to maintain control over if they are not towing the line then the punishment or the penalty that they will have to face will be higher than you know what others have to face and of course women's bodies and women's sexuality is something that needs to be safeguarded and needs to be controlled right because that is the key to maintaining caste purity and that is the key to maintaining the caste system. So this is almost in so many ways like the law of the land when the colonial system has made inroads into the country, right? So, you know, when we're saying that what we are saddled with is a colonial system, what we're seeing is that it's a system that has been built around these existing laws that were there right so when the colonial government thinks that we there are some and you know borrowing from these uh, sort of pseudo scientific notions that sujna was talking about you know of some people being criminals by birth and you know maintaining that control over society the caste system and the rationale of the caste system becomes like this sort of fertile ground in which they can root this understanding and Therefore, then build this system on, right? So that this becomes like the sort of foundational structure on which these institutions are built. So then when you see like the institution of the police, you see that its existence is sort of synonymous with saying that we want to maintain this order in society. And we want to, therefore, there are some people that need to be controlled to maintain that order, Uh, And what is, who are these people and what is this order that is being maintained? It is order that is maintained in accordance with the caste system. So what we're seeing now, you know, now what we understand very commonly as being the law and order function of the police, like it is actually the function of the police that is rooted in saying we have to maintain the social order and which is the social order of caste. So you see that Like, the existence of these institutions, the design of these institutions is located around the caste system, right? Uh, So, I think to say that they practice casteist and gendered violence, to me, seems like an aberration because, like, to me, that that seems like a a sort of an anomalous framing because it is actually... Doing what it was designed to do, so it was we what we identify as casteist and gendered violence. They for them it is their job description, you know. So, therefore, like in the way that the police is functioning, like when you see that you know there is overrepresentation of certain communities within the prison population, and like for instance with the question of custodial rape, also right when custodial rape was recognized as a category of violence uh, after the Mathura case of the 1970s, you see that it has happened as a result of violence against an Adivasi woman by police officials, right? And then you see that, like the way, you know, when people or when women belonging to oppressor caste communities are going to court when the court is either taking cognizance of the violence against them or denying the violence against them, you will see that the rationale completely differs, right? So you will see that, and this has been recorded in multiple cases, you know, you see Mrinal Satish's work on uh, appellate court rate judgments uh, in India, you will see that this language of, you know, like this honourable, woman on the honorable Indian woman who would never compromise her dignity you know this virgin is something that is constantly peddled right so even when people are found guilty this is a narrative that is peddled and you see that that narrative essentially is something that is employed for upper caste women so it's a narrative that is essentially saying that look these are women whose bodies and whose sexuality needs to be controlled and like if you look at the way that you know, Manu also understands caste, right? Uh, Like, understands the bodies of women. He's saying that actually, the key to controlling the caste system in terms of controlling of sexuality is the sexuality of the upper caste woman. Because if the upper caste woman decides to violate the principle of endogamy, it means then the caste system collapses, right? So, what you see is that you see the court saying that, look, this is the honor that needs to be safeguarded. And, you know, we've been popular sort of analysis of this. We've said, actually, it's patriarchal honor. And, you know, like the courts are being patriarchal. They want to safeguard the honor of women. But actually, what they're saying is they're they're interested in safeguarding the honor of upper caste women. Because if you contrast that with the case of Mathura, if you contrast that with the case of Bhavri Devi, you will see that the same courts are saying, this was a promiscuous woman. This is a woman who made herself sexually available. And therefore, this is not an act of rape. This is what the Supreme Court said in Mathura's case, right? And in Bhavri Devi's case, you see, the court will say, you know, upper caste men would never do this. And this is it is not possible that they would engage in this. So what you see what the court is doing is that the court is basically saying that this is not violence. And even if and it is not violence because it's caste entitlement. Because again, if you go back to the Manu Manu says that it is a matter of right by which upper caste men can sexually access the bodies of Bahujan women, right? And you see that logic being replicated at every step of the way you know, whether it is in the police station, whether it is in the courts, and it is a logic that plays out, because it is the method of the system. The Criminal Tribes Act is a prime example of it, right? And, you know, we are expecting that, and thinking that, you know, this is something that that this is an implementation issue, uh, or this is an issue with the police not doing its job well, when I actually think that the police is doing its job perfectly well. It is the problem the problem lies with us that we we that we don't understand, like I was saying earlier, what their job description is. Several years ago, there's a statue of Manu outside of the Rajasthan High Court. Uh, and there were these three women all from Bahujan communities uh, who tried to desecrate that statue. And this these women were of course then charged for destruction of public property uh the public property in this case being the statue of manu uh but this uh, the statue of the manu of manu still exists outside the rajasthan high court or in in the rajasthan high court's premises so i think it shows us that what is the kind of value or what is the kind of uh you know, system that we are trying to safeguard with the law, right? It is it is ultimately the legacy of Manu that we are trying to uphold and that those who are challenging the legacy in any way are then criminalized.
0: Right, right. And and could we uh, understand these processes of criminalization and how they are different uh, now, uh, if, if at all from before?
1: So, like the institution of caste is not a static institution, right? With the habitual offenders provisions, right? So, You see that five years, half a decade after uh, independence, the Criminal Tribes Act is repealed. And you see that it's replaced with these habitual offenders provisions. Now, on the face of it, they're not saying there are some communities that are criminals by birth. But you see that what it is doing, it it is replicating that sort of logic to say that, okay, there are some people uh, who are constantly committing these crimes and therefore we need to keep control on them there needs to be surveillance uh, and essentially it what you see is that it's the same communities that in 1952 got decriminalized being now thrusted into this new category of habitual offenders and it is also a category that is because it is far more nebulous it's not classifying like I was saying certain communities and what it also says it gives the police a lot of discretionary powers to decide who in their jurisdiction can be considered to be a habitual offender. So then the parameters will also differ from you know who according to who the police deems fit right to be a habitual offender but now it comes to how the discretionary power of the police is being exercised right. So if we go back to what we were discussing earlier, which is to say that this is an institution whose origin story is to maintain order, and which is the social order of Brahminism. Then, the discretionary power that is being utilized is also being utilized in the same manner, which means that, you know, the same Vimukta communities are now being termed as criminals under these habitual offenders provisions. So, you see in Bhopal, which is where we are based, you will see you know, people from the Pardhi community, Kanjar community, Kuchbandia community being termed as habitual offenders, having to go to the Thana on a weekly basis to give attendance, being subjected to surveillance, their movements being tracked, you know, sort of functions, family functions are something that they have to get permission from for from the local police. You will see that sort of architecture of surveillance and, you know, life 1952 continuing even post 1952 right and now what has also happened is that with this habitual offenders provision we were we're also seeing that there is another veneer that has been added to it which is the veneer of technology we have taken objectivity several steps further to say well yeah you you know the, the police can exercise its discretion to target certain communities that is still in popular understanding recognized as exceptional violence and you know exceptional misuse of discretion but let's say for argument's sake that is also true and we need to address what is quote-unquote the issue of human bias so what do we bring in now we bring in technology because what human beings can do wrong where human beings will err technology will not so now we need that objective veneer right so now we've seen is to say that Artificial intelligence, facial recognition technologies have all come into the play to say we need to make this more efficient. We need to make policing more efficient. So what are we going to do? We will say that we will create these databases. So now in India, what I mean, it's existed even before. So now the crime and criminal tracking network system, which is the CCTNS, is being now pitched as this sort of wide database where all records of, you know, all of these different like who are the habitual offenders, what are identified as criminal hotspots, all of this data is now stored away into this system, right? And, you know, what we saw now, for instance, happening in Hyderabad a couple of months ago, where pedestrians were being stopped and, you know, they were being asked to take down their masks and, you know, their pictures were being taken by this facial recognition software, which is then... Tallying it with the databases to see okay whether this is a person who has a criminal record or is someone who's suspicious or not, right? Now, the thing is that we've made this case to say that there is this technological and digital architecture that needs to be put in place to address this. But what we are not cognizant of, or what we're not seeing, is that just the mode of that is functioning, mode of this functioning has changed, but in its original form you see that these databases are the registers that the police have maintained with the habitual offenders, which essentially means it is all the Vimukta communities that are now being transferred to the databases, right? So it is Vimukta communities and depending on, you know, which locality, there will be Pasmanda Muslims, there will be Dalits. So you are seeing that it is the same sort of logic that has now acquired a different form, but so it's but so but it is essentially the case of old wine in a new bottle.
2: Something that Nikita and I like to say often is that the category of the hereditary criminal has just now been placed into like this more palatable, neutral category uh, of the habitual offender. Right, essentially just removing that sort of um, pseudo scientific tie. And, and trying to make it seem more psychosocial. And the police today are also very smart. You know, when you ask them questions about, you know, where they choose to investigate certain crimes or even what kind of crimes they choose to investigate, right? They're very clever. I mean, sometimes they're very clever uh, about not naming caste and they'll say other reasons like, oh, you know, these are... Um, informal laborers or they're addicted to gambling or they're addicted to uh, alcoholism and in order to support that they need to be able to do uh, they they need to you know commit crimes or this is why they do it or they'll say you know these are communities that are just uh, immoral because uh, they they haven't sort of lived a a modern life yet or a life with uh, respectability or morals so there is a lot of uh, whitewashing that happens at the police station level as well. And of course, at the digital level, again, there is that invisibilization of caste. But as Nikita rightly pointed out, no matter what indicator is considered in these criminal justice databases, to identify someone as being a criminal or having criminal tendencies, and that's the catch with um, the idea of the hereditary criminal as well as the habitual offender, right? The question is that these individuals uh, who are branded are not necessarily suspected of committing a specific crime. They are constantly under surveillance of being likely to commit crime at any moment. So the anxiety is that if we don't surveil them, And and we sort of stop surveilling them for one second, we are giving them that opportunity to commit crime because this is like a knee-jerk sort of reaction that these communities or individuals, you know, reach to. You know, there is like a lot of neutralizing of those factors that happens. But one is that these criminal justice databases that identify certain individuals as being habitual offenders, they are themselves informed by and dependent on the you know extensive police records of surveillance that that were maintained for centuries right that detailed documented fictionalized uh, and and really wrote the narrative of criminality on these communities one and two even when say that perception of you know criminal antecedents is not considered and you have other criteria being considered like say, education or employment or what property is owned or, or, you know, what kind of mobility these communities or individuals have, all of that is ultimately, at the end of the day, coded in caste. Right? Because the sort of education or employment one has access to is also dependent entirely on on one's caste. So there is no way that these criminal justice databases cannot be casteist. Even if we didn't have this this entire criminal colonial history of maintaining extensive records and patterns of criminality for certain communities, which are obviously then picked up and amplified and sort of over scrutinized um, and, and then packaged as the truth by algorithms.
0: Right. And, you know, just revisiting your specific research based on which uh, we started this episode, uh, could you share some of your major findings that we haven't covered so far?
1: There are these laws, right? like. A- the Excise Act, which are targeting communities that have been traditionally making liquor uh, or wildlife protection that are targeting people who have been communities that are traditionally hunters, right? So what you're seeing is one outcome of this is incarceration, you know, you you think the police arrest you and we look at prison numbers and we say that acha over-representation, hai. you know, there is... Overrepresentation representation of marginalized communities in the prison population, so on and so forth. Now, of course, incarceration is terrible. But what we are also not looking at, like if we were to push that conversation beyond incarceration, what we are seeing is that there is an entire legal system that has been designed to criminalize every aspect of the lives of these communities, right? So whether it's the excise law and the wildlife protection act whose examples I had cited that, you know, will target people's livelihoods. Being termed as a habitual offender and being termed as a as someone who's deemed criminal, basically the principle of innocent until guilty doesn't exist for you. It's been turned on its head. You're guilty until, well, you're proven guilty by the law. You know, even the possibility of having a life, you know, even if I were to say that, the state is targeting me for making traditional liquor. So, I am going to get rid of my traditional occupation and I am going to say, try to access education and get another source of employment for myself. It's not possible to do that because the moment people will see your last name, it's assumed that you belong to this community. Your ability to move, right? So, there are these external provisions which will say, oh, you're a threat. So, in some parts of the country, it's called Jilabadar in... Uh, some other parts, you know, they will say tadi par. So you're a criminal to aapko. Which means you can't access your district and other places for like say at least six months to one year. Which means your freedom of movement is curbed. Even if you aren't externed, you will see that there are people from so many paardhi, kanjar, kuchbandiya communities who are even too scared to go to the market. Because you think if you go to the market, the police will arrest you. And then, you know, you will be detained and then subsequently charged under some case. If you're a child, you can't access education because there is, of course, the sort of caste-based discrimination that you're subjected to in schooling, but also means that, you know, you're picked up by the police so very often, even as a minor, that you're forced to drop out of school. So, what we're seeing is that there is a 360-degree impact on people's lives. So... What we are seeing as incarceration, yes, that's a problem, but incarceration is a subset of this. Just because people are not imprisoned does not mean they are not living a life of imprisonment and not living under the specter of that criminalization. And I think there is an entire legal system and an entire architecture that is designed to make sure that people are constantly living under the fear and specter of this constructed criminality.
2: All of the laws that we're referring to, right, they're just added arsenal for the police to be able to sort of extort these communities for money. And all of these laws come, they come with a hyper visibility of the bodies of Vimukta individuals in any kind of public space. Um, I think for me, when, when I had a conversation with somebody that belonged to the community, like one of the most jarring things that I'd heard was that this person, he'd been, you know, put in jail and he was arrested on on a false case. And he said that once he returned from jail, he didn't have the courage to go to the local tea shop for a couple of months because he was that that constant terror, institutionalized terror of being hyper visible in public spaces and then being subject to scrutiny, being subject to questioning, being subject to surveillance uh, by the police. Uh, is just 24 by 7, 365, as Nikita was saying. And any sort of you know mobility, economic, or just spatial that these communities have comes with additional scrutiny because the assumption is these are criminal communities, these are immoral individuals. If they have acquired any kind of wealth, it must have been done in illegal ways. And of course there is an entire universe of laws that are you know criminalizing the livelihoods and the traditional livelihoods of these communities. So you're not allowing them to practice their traditional livelihoods but you're also not allowing them to access education or to be equal members in society. And you know the, the sort of stigma of criminality is is now just pervasive. Even amongst ordinary members of society, right? Because if one is constantly being checked, called for uh, regular check-ins by the police, uh, if one is constantly being picked up for questioning, if there is, you know, a case of uh, housebreaking or theft, or if, uh, or if one's presence just invites, like that, that consequent police presence, then of course, you know, options for employment, options for pursuing education also diminish drastically, right? So, there is a, a complete constriction of these communities that is arising from caste, that is arising from coloniality, and of course, new veneers of technology. And that criminalization continues throughout the, the process of the criminal justice system. It's not just that the institution of police intends to view these communities with extra suspicion. When these individuals have cases charged against them and they are presented before courts, the fact that there are a large number of cases uh, that they are charged under is itself uh, tilting the scales of justice against them, right? There is that assumption that if you have X number of cases filed against you, then you must be a wrongdoer because why would the police go about filing cases or why would you continuously be suspect? so so there is no examination of whether any of those cases are um, have any merit or have any evidence and that specter of criminalization really follows one like a shadow irrespective of where one goes so yeah it's also just criminalization of entire networks when the police is picking up one individual from the Vimkta the community for questioning or for surveillance they are constantly also you know collecting details about their associates their family members their minor children so even even if only a cup a few individuals in the community are put on police records as habitual offenders uh, the, the sort of uh, i guess local knowledge that the police is maintaining whether in records or off records is that of entire networks of friendship family and, and community
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I think uh, one thing that was also uh, very um, well explained in in the article definitely was the use of um, sexual assault by Savarna male and this entire system as a form of uh, retribution to uh, subjugate women. And there were several examples, but I thought one uh, where you've spoken about uh, how in 2007 in the Betul district, if I'm saying that correctly, of Madhya Pradesh, uh, how this the murder of uh, an upper caste woman was pinned on uh, people from the Vimukta Pardhi community. So if we can uh, just speak a little about this and what the role of law is and what it could be in such a situation and such a case.
1: Like I was saying earlier that in the sort of judicial, uh, legal narrative, it's almost like a Bahujan woman can never be a victim. On the flip side, it's almost like the perpetrator is always a Bahujan man. I mean, when something like Hathras happens, you see that it takes so long to get an FI registered and all. But like what has happened in the case of Betul, for instance, you will see that each time there is an instance of uh, violence against women from upper caste communities, you will see that there is this sort of sort of instant backlash against men belonging to Bahujan communities, right? And I'm not saying this to say that men from Bahujan communities are incapable of causing harm, right? But I am saying this to say that there is the way that the wheels of the system churn, you will see that there is that instant backlash. And regardless of whether, you know, the harm has been established or not, in which I mean that whether it's until it's proven or not that these individuals are the ones who are the perpetrators, you will see that very swiftly things have moved and uh, retribution has been achieved, right? So I think this also, of course, along with that sort of typology of who can be the survivor and who can be the perpetrator, I think... What it also to me, for me, raises questions is about how we are also conceptualizing and making meaning of harm, right, or the redressal of harm. And I think in the legal imagination, so far it has been through the lens of retribution alone. So even after 2012, the gang rape of Jyoti Singh Pandey, you saw that there was, you know, this push for saying, "Oh, we need stringent criminal laws, we need... Uh, the death penalty right so it has been of course it has been to the detriment of baujan communities only but it has been very heavily focused on this so to answer your question about whether there are avenues within the law uh, to think about this i think yes for sure but i don't think there are avenues within criminal law for it You know, and that is the only sort of avenue that we have explored thus far, which is is to say that each time there is harm of any kind, whether it is somebody violating the lockdown or somebody engaging in sexual violence, the only response to that is to arrest and incarcerate them. So, I think like all of these learnings, particularly after 2012, I think should now push us to think, okay, what are the ways in which we apply our mind to thinking about the law beyond criminal law and also thinking about how we can actively decriminalize, right? So, we also have to think about whether every kind of harm or every kind of aberration needs to be responded with retribution and pen. Like, for instance, in this country, if two people are found playing cards on the road, they can be charged under the gambling act and be incarcerated for a month. Now, the question is, even if, let's say, for argument's sake, we were to assume that two people playing cards on the road is a problem, is the response to, to it incarceration? Like, it's it's almost like that sort of one-stop solution. So, I think one way of also, I think, for if we are going to Move beyond criminal law, dependence on it has to reduce, right? To say how we can also think of addressing harm, and I mean, and this work has happened. Like, we've seen this particularly happen, you know, in the US in the context of like thinking about restorative justice, right? To say that, yes, how can you not just think about conceptualize redressal of harm beyond? retribution, but also how you can more effectively center the harm that has been caused to the survivor. So I think even in terms of the law, like say for instance, with the lockdown, you know, in India when people were beaten up by the police, so many people were incarcerated, you know, as part of our pandemic police study, we found that most people that were arrested by the police were for these really low level offenses like gambling, as I mentioned earlier, or, you know, pedestrians walking without a mask. But, you know, in several other jurisdictions, there were people who were fined, for instance, or they had to, like, say, undertake some sort of community service or things like that. So, I think it is possible within the framework of the law to think about this. You know, we've done this with the Domestic Violence Act. You know, in the Domestic Violence Act, the woman can go to the court and say, okay, this man is making my life miserable and the court cannot order a domain protection order, which means that, you know, he cannot hover around the woman, he cannot be in the same place as the woman. So you are addressing the harm without saying that this harm can be addressed by only throwing the man in the jail. Like we have found ways around moving outside of this trap of retribution and criminalization. And I think there is possibility for that But at the same time, like I was saying, it's also important to think about and expand our imagination beyond this system also, right, Uh, which is what like these instances of restorative justice and transformative justice, which are also rooted in the idea that this violence is happening for more fundamental reasons, right? Like people are, there are other systems of support that are non-existent, which are pushing people to even perpetrate this harm and it's seeking to address those fundamental causes of this and not merely just tackling the symptom of it like we are trying to do with the criminal justice system and i think there is a lot of that work that needs to be done and we have a long long way to go
0: yes yes i think i think the details you've shared really go beyond uh, the articles uh, that uh, you've published uh, in epw and help us understand how the law and the police are operating uh, on the ground. just looking to the future, uh, what are mechanisms that could be useful to hold public officials accountable? Uh, and what are other ways, uh, you know, that w- through which we can counter uh, the ongoing criminalization of Vimukta communities?
2: I, I think the first thing that needs to be done is just raising that threshold of what we consider as violence against Vimukta communities. State violence it really needs to be theatrical it it needs to be it needs to be extremely public it needs to be extremely brutal barbaric for 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 it to even register as violence uh, against these communities or for it to register as unjust or arbitrary criminalization i think that the the larger problem is that the criminalization and the sort of state violence that is seen against these communities is very insidious. It is extremely normalised and it's extremely procedural. So I think the first thing to do is to raise that threshold of what we consider as violence and and harm against these communities. And I think that the second thing to do is to, to start repealing the laws and start putting injunctions on the sort of discretionary powers That the state and the police have over dictating the lives and the livelihoods of these communities. Of course, I'm cognizant of the fact that, you know, like the repeal of law is not really going to change much in terms of how policing will still be carried out or how caste will still be enforced through the system of policing. So I think then the next logical step is really examining what is the role of the police and who should they be protecting and what should they be protecting us against how and what for
1: to just add to this i think one is of course like the discretionary power of the police and you know with particularly in case of the vimuktas this this everyday violence i mean i mean the violence against vimuktas is heavily undocumented and this everyday violence of policing against marginalized communities is particularly undocumented So I think it's important to do that. And the other is also like, you know, what we were saying earlier that it's important to see apart from creating these systems of checks and balances, how we can also reduce our dependence on this system, right? So, you know, these are questions that we should be asking is if we are dealing with a public health crisis, like we are with COVID, then why is an institution whose job description is investigation and maintenance of law and order responding to it. And also on a daily basis, and this is something that we've also been trying to do with CPA Project's work, is seeing how we can push back and create these checks and balances, right? So to give you an example, several years ago, this Pardhi woman called Indramal Bhai, uh, who died by suicide as a result of police harassment. And the Pardhi community in Bhopal, you know, resisted against this and, Pushed for the officers in the case to be prosecuted. Um, and it's important to see that in order to prosecute any public official, you need sanction from their department, which means here you would need the police department to sanction, which refused to grant that sanction. And then, of course, uh, they went to the court and the court said that yes, there is definitely a case, ordered a CBI investigation, and the CBI investigation revealed then they registered an FIR and a chart sheet in the case, right? So I think it is also to see how we can push back against instances of violence by the police each time, you know, there is someone who, a case that results in acquittal and you can very evidently say that this is a case which was entirely made up and motivated by the investigating officers. How can we bring them to task for malicious prosecution? So utilizing existing existing provisions within the law to build those systems of accountability but also thinking about how in the longer run the powers and the dependence on that system can be reduced uh, in order to ensure that you know there are there is no more room or like the room for them to even exercise and misuse their discretionary power is reduced.
2: I also just wanted to plug the CPA project's work. And I think I can because I'm no longer a formal employee. But I want to add supporting organizations like this, you know, Criminal Justice and Police Accountability project that are invested in doing the kind of informed, community-led, community-based human rights lawyering uh, and, and providing that sort of uh, building, you know, investing institutional resources and immense personal resources in building the kind of networks within communities where they are also feeling, you know, supported by like the larger civil society, human rights lawyering ecosystem to pursue, you know, action to challenge that status quo of impunity against impunity for uh, police officials. So I, I do think that investing resources in in, you know, examining the kind of work that the CPA project is doing and supporting that work and seeing how the principles that organizations like the CPA project are promoting to other contexts and to other geographies is also something that I I would consider uh, equally important.
0: covered a lot of ground uh, in this episode and and I'd like to thank both Nikita and Srujana for joining us and sharing their insights and giving us a powerful glimpse of how researchers can use their strengths to address deep-seated casteism and Brahmanical patriarchy. I'll share links to articles we discussed in the show notes. Also, uh, their article, which was co-written by Amiya Bokil, was a part of a specially commissioned series of seven articles published in EPW Engage on the state of NT-DNT communities in India. I recommend looking into those too, and I've shared links in the show notes. As always, do share your feedback with us via any of EPW's social media handles or email us at socialepw.in. At Take care and thanks for tuning in.